Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Truth and Movies set sail today. Is Johnny Depp all washed up? We'll discuss Pirates of the Caribbean, Salazar's Revenge, and ask the question, is piracy killing movies? From sharks to scandies, there's more than one fin in the other side of hope, an absurdist comedy drama about the refugee crisis from director Aki Kurismaki. And in the film club, it's Aussie crime drama Animal Kingdom. Also, we'll be talking to David Jenkins, almost certainly from the deck of an oligarch's yacht, as he brings us all the latest from the Cannes Film Festival. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, everyone. So I am Nick Dunkoff. I'm filling in for James Richardson uh, this week, and it's a great pleasure to be here uh, with Simran Hans. Hello. Uh, and also with Adam Woodward. Hi. Uh, Adam, as you know from listening to the podcast previously, of course, is the uh, digital editor of Little White Lies magazine. Yeah. And I, li- I always like that idea of you being a digital creation. Yeah. Like you're basically like the Tron-style editor of Little White Lies. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty deep in the, in the system. Yeah, into the grid. Yeah. Simran... You're part of the Little White Lies extended family, aren't you? I am. Whereabouts would you put yourself on the family tree? Are you like a black uh, sheep cousin, some kind of wayward aunt, some kind of... Annoying little sister? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll let Adam decide that. And where else can we read you or hear you? Uh, you can read me in the Observer New Review. I'm a film critic over there. That's exciting. So Sunday's made. Uh, you can listen to Simmer on a Sunday. You can listen to her anytime. You can read her <laughs> on a Sunday. Um, we should uh, we should also talk about the listeners because we've had uh, some correspondence uh, since last week, which is great. Thank you for your emails. Uh, if you want to email us, we'll give you the email address in just a minute. Um, let's see what I had. We had quite what I'm going to say is a semi-lengthy email from Jamie Lang, but that's the point of emails. If you want to keep it short, you could uh, just use some other kind of forum, couldn't you? But he does say, or she, we've, we've, there's been some conversation this week about whether our correspondents are male or female, and Jamie could be either. Um, I enjoy the show. I want to wish you the best of luck. I have been and will be tuning in every week. Um, and uh, thanks for the hours of entertainment each week. Literally several hours so yeah, far. Se- several hours. You make walking my dog far more enjoyable than it might be otherwise. Well, that, I mean, that was our goal, I think, in, in well, I think starting that, this podcast. I think the era of podcasts have sort of corresponded with when legally you had to pick up dog poo. Yeah. So I like to think that those two things have cancelled each other out. In the old days, going for a, going for a walk with a dog was okay, because you didn't have to do that. Mm. Since you have to do that, you need the plus, and the plus is, is Oz. We sort of counterbalance. That's a, that's a very beautiful thought, Dog I think. poo. Yeah. Yeah, if you imagine a pair of scales, we're on one side and the dog poo is on the other. Yeah. Chris B got in touch. An avid Irish listener here of your Truth and Movies podcast with James Richardson. 
Not this week, bad luck. Um, I have generally, genuinely really enjoyed the first four shows of this nascent podcast. So who knows? Crispy, today could be where it all ends for you, but uh, let's hope not. Let's talk about the first film this week and the big release. Big release this week. And I'm going to say straight away, I don't understand why Pirates of the Caribbean Salazar's Revenge is called that in this country. Because <laughs> everywhere else around the world, it's called Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Men's Shoes. Do you think that's a better title? Do you think it sounds too much like Pirates of the Caribbean 2 Dead Men's, Dead Man's Chest? Is that what the other one was called? You I, see? I believe so. But why would they do that in the rest of the world? Maybe they didn't call the second one what they called it here. You, you mean there's a sort of alternative Pirates of the Caribbean mythology? There's here a in whole, the UK? yeah, there's basically a sliding doors thing going on with Pirates of the Caribbean where everybody gets one title except us. I'm reading here that it was originally called Dead Men Tell No Tales. That's it. Something like that. There's a dead man in it. I don't know where, where the shoes come into it, though. Yeah. There's not really m- much in the way of uh, shoe-based. No, <laughs> I don't know where I got the shoes from, to be honest. Um, the next thing we normally do is talk about the plot, but I'm not even sure I can remember the plot of this. Anybody want to give the plot a stab? Well, the brief synopsis uh, is that Captain Jack Sparrow is back. Yeah. Uh, and he's riled someone up. He's ruffled up a few feathers, as, as he usually is, uh, up to his old tricks. Um, in this case, it's Javier Bardem's uh, Armando Captain, Captain Salazar. Salazar. How do we say it? Salazar? Salazar is definitely how he says it. With a bit of sort of slime or, or something falling out of his There's mouth. There's a lot of yeah. Jacques Sparrow. You will soon pay for what you did to me. No, 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 no. There's no need to bother, really. Karina! I have no time to chat because my map's just run away. I will be waiting for you. Why would you be waiting for me? Why would you be waiting for me? The scenes where Johnny Depp and Javier Bardem are performing together, I found pretty incomprehensible. I'm not... <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? I mean, how long is it since the last one? It's like seven years, I think. It's six years since the last one. And what I'd forgotten is quite how incredibly mannered Johnny Depp's performance is. And I'm absolutely not prepared to go through the previous five, four films and see whether it's something that's progressed over time. But I I mean, I guess it is. My my memory, as you see, is that the first film, I remember thinking I quite enjoyed it for what it was big summer blockbuster. It was nice to have pirates back. There'd been a long gap between pirate movies and it felt like something at least, you know, entertaining enough. But it was such a thing, it's so many diminishing returns on all those sequels that I sort of thought, well, surely after seven years, if they're bringing it back, this is a fresh start. And I think, haven't they called this a soft reboot? Whatever I think that means. Perhaps because it has a, a different directors and also a different screenwriter, which is maybe why they're calling it a, yeah. a soft reboot, if indeed they are calling it that. It's a funny thing as well, isn't it? Where it's, you know, Captain Jack Sparrow looms very large on the posters and all the publicity, but ostensibly they try and make it a story about the other characters. So it always used to be, or at least to start off with, it was Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley. Yeah. And in this movie, we, what we do get is two hot young things. I mean, that's you could describe it another way, but that is the point of them. The guy is, is it Henry Turner? Yeah. He's played by Brent, Brenton Thwaites, who is, you know, objectively speaking, uh, a fine-looking man. Yeah, he's and strapping, handsome young man. Definitely strapping. And uh, his um, love interest, I suppose you could say, is played by Kaya Scodelario, who actually, you know, she's British actress. Yeah. 
uh, came out of this this what's starting to look like the Skins school of showbiz training because she was in Skins and like a lot of other people she's gone to bigger things and she was in the Maze Runner as well wasn't she and I actually thought that she was really good both in the Maze Runner and in this I think she normally sort of goes beyond the material that she's given I don't know what you two thought I've got my problems with her I, I think this whole character um, Karina Karina Smythe I find that they've sort of plonked her in there as the yeah. clever one and, no and they've they've tried to kind of use her being the smart one. So basically in the movie, she's an astronomer and a horologist. So yes. she's kind of knows about clocks and she knows about the stars. And uh, she's the one who kind of leads them to the treasure. And um, and she's meant to be the one with the brains, but she's also the one with the boobs. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's the only woman. She is. Well, no, there's... Um, oh, actually, there is, there is a woman who is literally made to look like a fat pig that Jack Sparrow has to marry as a punishment. Yes, and there's also the, the mystic character as oh, well. Yeah. So basically you've got someone, a woman made to look like a fat pig, a witch, and the lead female character. So it's not great, is it? It's not, and, and I just think that trying to, to make um, this Kaya Scolario character the smart one is just a really pathetic attempt to... Uh, you know, dismiss any charges yeah, yeah. of sexism. I think that's that all it's there the for, film. isn't it? That's why they give her those that backstory, don't you think? The other thing, you mentioned that she's a horologist. It seems to me the only reason they said that she was a horologist is so that all the other pirates could make jokes about how it sounded like whore. Yeah. Which is fairly, I found fairly distasteful, to be honest. It's a little bit crass. Uh, I mean, that is the level of humour they're going for yeah. with this. Um, I actually think the, the film is not without... It's merits, though. I think there's an amazing opening yeah. uh, practical effects-driven sequence. Yeah. I mean, it's something like out of a Buster Keaton movie yes, where they, they rob a bank and, and that's kind of the reintroduction to Jack Sparrow. Um, and from there, it kind of goes downhill and falls back into the, the kind of blue screen, green screen mire that we're used to. I mean, it is an interesting question because about how, how Johnny Depp is going to carry on in his career because it, this, it's an odd time for him, isn't it? I mean, Johnny Depp, apparently this movie was slated originally to, to come out a lot earlier than this. And it was only the disaster of The Lone Ranger that made them push it back. Of course, then there was all those troubles in his personal life. But then, of course, he's also now attached to the Fantastic Beast franchise. So maybe maybe that's what's going to save him. What do you think? I think um, it's it's really the franchise that's finished him, if, if uh, it's my take on it. I just think he was a character actor before yeah. and, and you kind of think of him in all these different roles. Um, and, you know, obviously he collaborated with Tim Burton a lot, but the roles are fairly distinct. Yeah. Um, and then after this, he's just played a version of Jack Sparrow in, in every movie that he's been in. Yeah. It's, there was a time, I, it just makes me seem terribly old, but there was a time before Pirates of the Caribbean where people used to say, when's Johnny Depp going to have a hit? Because he was, like you say, just a character actor who everybody really admired. But of course, the curse for Jenny, Johnny Depp is he's also, or, or at least was, fantastically good looking. So he was never going to be able to sit in that character actor, um, those roles in movies forever. He was always going to get offered these big parts. But I think, it, it, I think it's an interesting point, the fact that maybe it spoils it. Orlando Bloom does get a bit of a moment in or this movie. Or Barnacle Bloom, as I like to call him. I'd, I'd forgotten how bad he is. Is that awful? I think it's a little bit unfair. He, he's he's probably n- not as uh, a high-profile an actor as uh, he might have been, but, I mean, he's been in, in the Lord of the Rings franchise and this, two yeah. of the highest-grossing franchises ever, so he, he's think, done something right. I think maybe he suffers from that, that Johnny Depp thing as well, which is that he's he's become associated with big franchises and he's found it difficult to escape from that because I think he probably wanted to get away from Pirates of the Caribbean and they've sort of 
dragged him back into it. Just a quick note, I wanted to mention the, the directors. I don't know whether this film will go on to make uh, money, you know, do well at the box office comparable to the rest of the series. I really hope that it does just so that these directors can go and do yeah. something else yeah, because yeah. They're, they made a film in 2012 called Kontiki, um, a Norwegian film, another sort of high seas adventure, which yeah. presumably some uh, bigwig at Disney saw and thought, right, these are our guys. But they're, they're decent filmmakers and I think they, they do invest this film with, with a real energy and ultimately I think it's a bit too big and convoluted yes. for them and they... they kind of get smothered by it a little bit. It's but unwieldy, isn't it? It is unwieldy, but I, I like them as directors. Um, Joachim Running and Espen Sandberg, their names. Apparently they're childhood friends from Norway. And yeah, I'd like to see them do do more. Do we want to mention the celebrity cameo or should we move straight on to the ratings? Well, I think we should just say that Paul McCartney has a brief cameo in this. It's uh, amazingly not the worst cameo mm. in the film. I thought he was better than Keith Richards was last time out. Yeah. Shall we talk about ratings? Simran, I'm going to come to you first. Sure. What do you think? Uh, so I guess for anticipation, I'd have to give it a one because I am actually allergic to the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Uh -huh. So I wasn't looking forward to it. Um, but I want to say, like, you're never rooting for a film to be bad as a critic ever. No, of course you're not. You're always of kind not. of going in yeah. wanting to get something out of it. And, and really, I got nothing. Um, for enjoyment, I would I would maybe give it two um, because I kind of had the opposite take as Adam. I found like the first three quarters of the film absolutely exhausting, just drivel. Um, and then the kind of last maybe 20 minutes, half an hour I was kind of into. Um, there's a really great set piece with a sort of glittering island. Um, I don't really want to spo spoil <laughs> why it glitters, but... I, I don't understand why it glittered, I don't think. <laughs> it, I thought it looked cool. Um, and then there's also a kind of underwater fight sequence at the end, which I think works and is kind of a bit visually different from mm. uh, all of the stuff on the ship, which is just, just this kind of murky, quite ugly-looking action sequence. Mm -hmm. And... I guess there is a kind of attempt at an emotion, getting at kind of like an emotional nugget towards the end. Um, it's a bit corny, but I think it at least is going for something that's more than these kind of trite jokes that don't really work yeah. and don't really land. Um, so, yeah, I give enjoyment a two. Um, but in retrospect, uh, I had to have to give it a one. I'm, I'm sorry. I will match your uh, anticipation and in retrospect scores, but I'd actually give it a three for enjoyment. So one, three, one. Um, just because a, I think my expectation was so low. It's quite a leap in the beginning. In it the is. I had a, I had a bit of fun with it, and um, I wouldn't watch it again. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the bottom line, isn't it? We're going to talk about uh, the other side of hope which is uh, the new uh, movie from Aki Karasmaki, uh, Finnish director. Could I leave it to you, Simon, to talk about the plot in the most basic of terms? Uh, so it's basically about a Syrian asylum seeker who decides that he's going to make a new life for himself in Helsinki. And uh, it's also about a sort of parallel story with a Finnish He's kind of a salesman who decides that he's going to leave his, his wife because she's a drunk and he plays some poker, wins some money and decides he's going to buy a sort of fixer-upper restaurant and their lives kind of collide in, in quite a funny 
way. We should say Aki Kurismaki, uh, you know, he's, he's been making films for a long time. His first one was, 19, it was 1983. But maybe he's best known for his last work, which was in uh, was uh, Le Havre. Um, but even that's six years ago. He doesn't exactly bang them out, does he? Um, uh, but they have this kind of absurdist vein running through them. If you've never seen any of his films, they're, they're not quite like anything else that you'll ever see, are they? They're not. And you're right in saying that he doesn't bang them out. And that's a really good thing, I think, yeah. for him. Um, he's someone who I like. I don't know that he's someone I think about very often. Right. He's not a filmmaker I would necessarily, you know, go and pick out of yes. my, my DVD collection or whatever. But every time a new film of his comes around, uh, I'm really excited for it. This one uh, is the second part, uh, along with La Hava, in his Harbour trilogy. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting seeing him essentially present this response to the refugee crisis yeah. in his sort of typically droll, deadpan way. And I think that's that's what struck me as being really brave about it, isn't it? Is that to deal with something like the refugee crisis, can no- normally we'd only be used to be seeing that in a kind of social realist vein. Mm. And so to see someone like this director who generally deals in things that are um, shot in what you'd call a, a, a slightly non-realistic manner that deals with diet, you know, it brings out these deadpan performances from his actors a lot of the dialogue is very absurdist as well it, it's it's an almost non-realist portrayal of something that has to be dealt with quite sensitively but I thought that it for me it, it really worked I just I think it's really funny um, and and that's its great strength. Uh, you might expect a, a kind of drama about a Syrian refugee to be a, sort of a bit bleak, and, mm-hmm. and I think the humour is quite dark, and there's kind of a gloominess to it. Yeah. But um, it, it's very dry, and I think anyone who kind of likes that dry wit will will find a lot of a lot of sort of li- little laughs in it. It reminded me a bit of sort of early Jim Jarmusch in that respect, that kind of dry humour, that kind of sly coolness although all the all the people in it that play musical instruments are all already i mean this is all really old i was gonna say there's also this kind of almost kind of lynching it's that kind of slightly at a slant way of looking at things i mean i thought it looked extraordinary for this kind of movie i think i think this is a really uh as, as much as it is deadpan and it's got this humorous side to it it's a really humane film as well I found it really affecting. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's from this Finnish perspective, but it's very universal, I think, in the way it deals with the subject. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I think there's there are some astonishing images in it. When Khaled, the Syrian refugee, you know, the first time we see him is you see a shot of like a, a dump of coal on the back of the ship and he, he rises out of it. it. It's an extraordinary image. The sets look great. There is a very distinct kind of Scandinavian feel to the way the restaurant looks, the brilliantly named The Golden Pint, and, and the way the costumes, the car, and the main character drives this incredible 1950s American sedan. And apparently the set director and Carys Mackey have had some kind of enormous falling out about who's actually responsible for the look of the film, and it's had to, they've had to change the way they're doing the credits. It's kind of stuck in this time warp. You get this, this feeling like you're kind of in this maybe 60s, 70s yeah. kind of... Um, moment in time where the, the crappy restaurant where most of it is set uh, is has this incredible um, cartoon painting of Jimi Hendrix hanging on the wall, yeah. nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's just something really endearingly crap about it, uh, about not about the film, but about the way um, that kind of set design looks. It looks deliberately sort of scrappy. I think that combination of, of the way things look and these kind of deadpan performance, uh, performances and the dialogue means that when you do get those moments of humanity, it sort of hits you almost a little bit harder by having that remove. 
I mean, another director you could talk about who does non-realist movies is, is Wes Anderson. And people often accuse Wes Anderson of making movies that are slightly don't have much emotion in them. But I think sometimes having that slight remove almost en- enhances that for you. Yeah, definitely. And just going back to what you were talking about just now, um, a bit of a tangent, but I actually went to Helsinki for the first time last year um, as, as part of a work trip to sort of see how the Finnish film industry operates. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was weird. It was, I mean, Helsinki itself does feel like it's st- stuck in a bit of a time warp. Um, Finland itself, I think, only celebrated its 100th anniversary as a yeah. nation like last year. Um, and, yeah, walking around, actually visited uh, at the bar that Aki Kurosmaki owns with his brother and um, various other locations from his films. And it did actually feel like I was in an Aki Kurosmaki film. It was great. Um, I think we should talk about uh, the ratings for this film. Um, it, it feels like we all liked it, but we're going to find out, and we're going to find out first with Adam. Uh, I'd give it a, a full sweep of fours. Simon? I would maybe give it a two for anticipation. I hadn't seen Kurosmaki's other work. I didn't really know much about this film other than um, it was quite positively reviewed when it played in Berlin at the Berlin Film Festival earlier this year. Um, but I didn't really have any expectations for it and I, I really loved it. I, I'd probably give it a four for enjoyment and probably a four in retrospect, although I have seen it twice and I don't think it's quite as fun on the second watch. I got something quite different from it. When I first watched it, I saw it at the Glasgow Film Festival a couple of months ago and I was really laughing a lot at the jokes. I mean, there's one sort of set piece involving some sushi, which I yeah. was crying with laughter at. Um, but then on on the second watch, I kind of, I got more of the, the sort of pathos mm-hmm. that they're getting at. And um, actually it's quite downbeat in parts. Yeah. Um, but I, I still still give it a solid. Humor sometimes needs an audience as well, don't you think? Watching something on your, I mean, I'm assuming you watched it on your own the second time round. Uh, no, the second time. Well, so the first time round, I watched it with a sort of public screening right. uh, with, with people who'd, who'd paid to see it. And the second time around, I watched it to review it with a bunch of critics who actually didn't seem to take to it. Critics um, are notoriously quiet in comedies. They don't want to give anything away. Some critics, yeah. Yeah. Not all critics, of course not. I'm not going to all critics with the same brush. I'm sure some of them absolutely laugh their pants off. Um, Up next, David Jenkins joins us from Cannes. Hello. Hi, David. Hi. Hey, it's Adam. How are you? Oh, hey, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Good. I'm just... uh... Out on the on the Quasette at Cannes, enjoying the films and the sun. Um, I saw your tweet earlier that described uh, The Beguiled as a stone-cold masterpiece. Do you want to elaborate on that for us? Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because I think in Cannes they have the, a kind of competition lineup and it's sort of stretched over uh, 10 or 10 days. And they, I think there is a sense that they, they put films in certain positions to... They, they know some films are maybe going to be a bit tougher than others and some films are going to be a bit more like you know universally enjoyed and and this this uh, the Bagard by which is a new film by Sophie Coppola is like slap smack dab in the middle and uh yeah it's weird because I, I wasn't maybe expecting to to love it as much as I did okay uh, there was a there was a trailer of it that sort of gave a lot away and maybe set up the tone as being a, a little bit kind of camp and kitsch um, but but no, it's, it it absolutely blew me away. It's like I think it's the best thing I've seen out here, and I, for me, her her best film as well. Um, it's a sort of retooling of the uh, sort of Don Siegel Clint Eastwood film. It's about a Yankee soldier set during the uh, Civil War 
who is found injured in a forest near a, a woman's uh, kind of boarding school in Virginia in the south. And, the, and they uh, bring him in to help him heal and are kind of very instantly smitten by his kind of manly, macho vibe that he brings to the place. And then it sort of quickly turns into this very tense, you know, like a, a kind of, you know, sexual standoff almost where you don't really know if he's kind of playing them or they're playing him or uh, there's this real sort of sense of danger and... Uh, you got Nicole Kidman in the lead as well, who's really, really good. Okay, Do you, I mean, it sounds really good. Do you think it's uh, an awards contender? I mean, from it, it's a weird one actually, because this year there doesn't seem to be any film that you would say that you could say, yeah, that's going to win win an award. Or, or last year there was a film called Tony Erdman that played right at the beginning of the festival, and everyone was convinced throughout that that was going to be the one that won the big award. Uh, and then when when it didn't, there was a, a sense of inevitable disappointment. I think for this festival, there hasn't really been anything that sort of galvanised the kind of press corps. I mean, it's there's not one thing that everyone likes. There's, uh, I mean, I would love for this one to win the Palm. Uh, personally, I think it's yeah, as I say, the best, not just the best film in competition, but the best film I've seen in the festival. There's a film that people that uh, is being tipped called Loveless which is by the Russian director whose name I couldn't pronounce last week and I'm not even sure, sure I'm going to attempt to pronounce it this week. Yeah. So, uh, actually, I wasn't a massive fan of the film myself, but in terms of uh, um, love that it's got from elsewhere, there's certainly a feeling that it could, it could sort of go on and, and do something big come the prize, prize giving on uh, Sunday. That's, it's a really sort of brutal and bleak film about a couple who are going through a divorce and they they don't know who's going to get their 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 young sort of teenage son, and then basically something happens which sort of knocks their their kind of petty arguments in, into a in, in, into a different realm, and uh, yeah, it, it turns into a very different film where they're. Um, I don't want to spoil it, so so. <laughs> Okay, well, I know you've got uh, a film to get to, so we'll, we'll let you get on. But um, I know you're, you're back next week anyway, so we can have a, a quick rundown. But yeah, enjoy the rest of the festival. Sure, thanks. See you later. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So each week in the Little White Lies Film Club, uh, we talk about and recommend uh, a classic film, a film you may have missed or a film that's worth reappraising. And this week, um, we're going to talk about Animal Kingdom because uh, Australian director David Mitchell, uh, America, uh, Animal Kingdom was his first movie. He has a new film arriving on Netflix called War Machine, starring Brad Pitt, Ben Kingsley and Tilda Swinton. So we all sat down, watched Animal Kingdom again. It's his debut feature from 2010 about a criminal family from Melbourne it stars Guy Pearce, Joel Edgerton, Ben Mendelsohn and Jackie Weaver, uh, many of whom you will hear in this clip from the movie. Hey, Josh, I've got some bad news, mate. Who knows the bad news? Is everything OK here? Yeah, it's great. You all right, man? He's fine, Mr Lecky. Josh, I'd like you to come down to St Kilda Road with me, if that's OK. Hey, what's he done? Tell me, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure he gets disciplined. You come with me, Josh? Well, what do you want to talk to him about? Talk to me about it. We'll speak to you again at a later time when we're ready. I might, um... I might have some information for you about those two murdered police. I've been asking around a bit and... There's a few theories floating around, but I don't know if any of them are true or not, but... I might be able to help you with your investigation. Oh, thanks for that. Will you come with me, Josh? You go, love. I'll call Isra. Go put your shoes on. So what's great about doing this feature, or at least what I've enjoyed about doing this feature this week in particular, is that this is a movie that, although it came out in 2010, that is seven years ago now. And so really, all I remembered about it was that I liked it and that it was Australian. Um, and also, what was notable about it was that this was this also became famous for being a bit of a star-making film. So although Ben Mendelsohn had been around, anybody who knows Australian cinema or Australian TV, for that matter, because I think Ben Mendelsohn did appear in Home and Away or Neighbours at some point. They all do, don't they? Um, although, one or the other. Although, yeah, one or the other. Although he, um, uh, he was really sort of noticed by everyone in this, went straight over to Hollywood. Of course, now he's in uh, Star Wars movies and Batman movies and who knows what else. Guy Pearce was sort of already famous, but still doing his Aussie work. And Jackie Weaver, um, who stars as the matriarch of this crime family, she got an Oscar nomination for like the next film she did after this. So it's got this reputation as being a film that launched people's careers, hasn't it? Yeah, and of course you could say it launched the career of uh, David Michaud. Very how do you definite. say? How do you say his name? I'm just going Michaud? with. I'm going with Michaud. I think it's Michaud. Michaud. You're going to go with Michaud. I know it's it has a, it has a cir- <laughs> is it a circumflex over the O? It's got an accent. A roof. One the of those o. little roofs over the O. Yeah, Michaud. I think he's just put it in there to be pretentious. There's no business like Miss Show Business. It says, it screams art house director, doesn't it? Yeah. So loads of people got in touch with us about Animal Kingdom, which is great. It seems that there are lots of uh, fans of this movie out there. Uh, Simran, do you want to read us uh, one of the messages that we got? Yeah, I I quite like this one from Ken Bowes, who said, uh, it really is chillingly fantastic with some incredible performances. And I'm not just saying that because it's set in Melbourne. I'm guessing this guy's from Melbourne. Um, He says, I also really liked David Michaud's follow-up, The Rover, though the critics didn't. Although this critic did like The Rover. Yeah, Yeah, The Rover's great. 
There you go. Um, we also had uh, Des McDougall said on Facebook, great film. Anthony Partos' soundtrack is something very special, haunting and menacing like the film itself. Adam, have you got one? Um, yeah, Ben Keeler says, loved it, as well as his follow-up, The Rover, which we've discussed. Been hearing wobbly things about War Machine, but we'll be checking it out in a couple of days when it's on Netflix. We should say a little bit about the plot of Animal Kingdom, uh, apart from uh, the fact that it's uh, about a crime family. Can I uh, hand that over to you, Adam? Yeah, it opens with... Um, a sort of quite upsetting scene um, of a young man watching daytime television. Deal or no deal. Deal or no The Australian version of Deal or no deal. Yep. Um, and his mother has um, died of a heroin, o- a heroin overdose next to him. And, uh, yeah, it's done in a very sort of matter-of-fact way. I think the opening of it is just devastating. And it's an absolute masterclass in... Exposition. So normally you have to get so many characters talking to each other about what's happening around them. And yet you see this kid sitting on a sofa, watching the telly, his mother slumped next to him, ambulance men come in. Very quickly you realise that his mother overdosing is probably not something that he's not used to. And then seconds later he calls his grandmother... And he says, my mum's died, what am I going to do? And then, and she says, I'm going to, I'm going to come and find you. And he says, do you remember where I live? And in that one line, you know that they're estranged, that there's some reason why the mother and daughter have fallen out. All this stuff can, in, in another film, take pages and pages of dialogue that's not very interesting. I think it's just brilliant how quickly it immediately sets it up. And so he goes, this 17-year-old kid ends up living with his grandmother hilariously named Smurf, uh, played by Jackie Weaver, and this kind of motley group of brothers. Is Joel Edgerton one of the brothers, or is he just like a kind of surrogate family member? Uh, I'm not really sure. I think he's like a family friend. They've all got these... Um, they've all got nicknames, like you mentioned, Smurf. Mm. Ben Mendelsohn's character is called Pope. Yeah. So, yeah, they all have this, like... There's a, there's a hint of this connected family, but you're not really sure exactly where they all fit in together. But. Yeah. Um, and it's clearly dysfunctional from the off. In fact, there's a, there's a lovely scene where they're all where he is with the family, and uh, Joe Edgerton seems to be reasonably sensible. Another of the brothers is clearly off his head on coke the whole time, and yet still, even though you know that there are these misfits in this family, Jackie Weaver's character is immediately slightly odd. There's something disquieting about the fact that she behaves around. Her songs. She's she's really creepy, and um, as, as I was kind of mentioning to to you guys earlier, it really kind of um, I don't know made me feel quite sick the way that she she kisses the, all of the boys on the mm. mouth, all of her sons. She kind of it's it's almost a snog actually. Yeah, it's, it's it's overly intimate. It's quite graphic, um, and it makes you kind of think, uh, what's her relationship to them? What's the power dynamic going on? I think there's something um, also that's helped by the fact that she's really quite small. So what she has to do is, with all her sons, who are mainly quite hulking characters, she has to actually put her hands on the side of their face and pull them towards them for that kiss when she gives them a kiss and it immediately sets you off. But despite the fact that all these characters, you're immediately aware that they're, they're a, bit, a, a bit odd, they still talk about this other brother, Pope, who we haven't met yet, in kind of hushed tones that Pope is is basically laying low because they're a family of bank robbers, which, again, we've, we've learnt in a really pithy way just by David Michaud um, showing black and white footage of a bank robbery over the credits. So you never actually see a bank job, but you know that they're bank robbers. And then this character, Pope, played by Ben Mendelsohn, appears, and he sort of sucks all your energy towards him, doesn't he? If anybody's seen the series that he stars in on Netflix, Bloodline, it's it's sort of the same part that somebody clearly saw Animal Kingdom and went, 
he is really good at playing a black sheep of a family and he does that again. But that is not a complaint at all. I think he's absolutely terrific. Yeah, it's a it's a brilliantly cast film, this. And someone I don't think gets a lot of credit normally simply because the others have gone on to do sort of bigger and better things is um, James Freshville, who's the young the kid, yeah. Yeah, protagonist in it. And what I love about this film... I think voiceover in terms of ex- exposition is often quite a tricky thing to get right and yeah. I think he uses it masterfully here actually compared to his new film War Machine which we'll come on to later uh, the voiceover technique that he again employs there is is very sort of overused and quite yeah. stodgy actually well traditionally if you hear a voiceover it can it can be shorthand for they didn't really know how to tell the story here and so they put a voiceover on to kind of paper over the cracks but that voiceover like a, you know that doesn't actually come until after that those initial scenes where they've dealt with that kind of exposition brilliantly so you know that he's on top of it he's just using that voiceover you know for the right reasons I think what he really gets right is the sort of pacing and the tone of it it's a thriller and um, it's kind of punctuated by these moments of violence that are really quite shocking and um, even though I'd seen the film before many years ago I watched it again recently and um, just still found myself kind of gasping every time there was this explosion of of kind of horror on, on the screen um, and it's just, it's very tense. It's kind I mean, you know, it's called Animal Kingdom mm. because the the family are kind of like a pack of animals. There's something quite tribal about them. There's even some quite explicit uh, references to the title with, with them sort of running through the, the long grass and, and the fields outside where they live. People kind of being hunted like animals and, and, and you know, hunting like, like predators. So it's, it's quite... I guess obvious the metaphor, mm. but it kind of works. Well, there's, there's a natural order to their unit as well, isn't yeah. there? There's a hierarchy, um, and as the characters essentially get snuffed out, yeah. um, James Freshfield's character he, he sort of takes his place in in the family in the family tribe, basically. The sort of main thread of the movie is this push and pull there between. Him and his his crime family, who he's never been involved with before his mother died, and a policeman, Lecky, played by Guy Pearce. I think Guy Pearce actually gets a speech about animals and their pecking order and how you have to you know side with the strong rather than the weak. What do you think about Guy Pearce in this movie, aside from the fact that he has a moustache that my wife and I argued over the merits of, and I won't tell you who was on which side? I'm pro-moustache. I was pro-moustache, I'll tell you now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think he's really great in, great in this role. And um, I quite like seeing him in that sort of straight guy, yeah. um, kind of cop, like good cop um, kind of role. Yeah, I think it, I think it works for him. It is interesting to talk about David Michaud and, you know, the way his career has progressed since then, because as we were saying at the beginning, many of the actors in this basically just immediately decamped to Hollywood and done amazing things or certainly well-respected and presumably very well-paid things since. But it's been quite interesting what's happened to his career. So second film was The Rev, which I know you're a fan of, Simran, aren't you? Yeah, I, I remember seeing it a couple of years ago in a, a very small, sweaty screening room in Cannes and uh, everyone was quite excited about it and actually the reception coming out of that screening was quite lukewarm. But um, I was really into it and I think this was around the time where Robert Pattinson was starting to get interesting. Mm-hmm. He'd done Cosmopolis, uh, the David Cronenberg movie, but I think people were quite mixed on that. And then he 
sort of was in this and he was also in uh, Maps to the Stars at the same time and his performance in both of those films is, is quite weird. Yeah. Um, there's a really great bit in the Rover where you've just got him in a car singing the Kerry Hilson song Pretty Girl Rock, <laughs> which uh, is is really up there in, in terms of my pop music movie moments. And we're talking about this because David Michaud's now moving on to this, this movie on Netflix, which is called War Machine. What, what do we know about War Machine? War Machine is, uh, as the title suggests, uh, it's, it's a political satire um, about essentially about America militarism. It's set during the um, uh, war on Afghanistan and follows Brad Pitt's character who's a, a, a sort of highfalutin general um, doesn't really know uh, what he's doing in terms of his uh, counterinsurgency efforts but he's surrounded by these uh, yes men and Basically, he has a lot of power, doesn't really know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about this film, I think, is that David Michaud, as we discussed in Animal Kingdom and the Rover, is such a great director of actors mm-hmm. and in this film... Brad Pitt just kind of does his own thing. He he really runs with the character. And he's the feel, producer, isn't he? He's isn't the producer as well. But it feels like David Michaud didn't really have yeah. much input on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I think ultimately this film is going to, your enjoyment of it or people's enjoyment of it will likely fall on whether they like Brad Pitt's character yeah. or not. It's also actually being bold. It's a comedy, isn't it? Which we haven't really seen David Michaud do before. He does. We know he does this kind of intensity really well and he does violence and crime really well. But comedy's... A new area for him. What I want to know is is whether the Brad Pitt character in this film is a mashup of his role in Burn After Reading and uh, Fury. I mean, that's basically is it, is exactly that it. Yeah. Okay. I'm a big fan of Brad Pitt. I I think he's a really underrated actor. I think he does what he does exceptionally well, and I think he's generally a force for good because he gets a lot of movies made outside uh, the Hollywood studios and also he's never taken the money to be in a big superhero comic book adaptation. That's a shrinking number of actors these days, isn't it? Yeah, he does like to get his sticky fingers all over sort of um, the productions that he's involved in, though. I think there's a bit of self-interest there, a bit of smugness that sometimes manifests in the films. that's, That's the worry. But Animal Kingdom, we absolutely recommend unreservedly um, so um, do we know what we might be doing next week on the Little White Lies Film Club we do so we're going to do The Beguiled uh, not the new Sophia Coppola version uh-huh. uh, but the original Don Siegel 1971 version and the reason is that obviously Sophia Coppola's new yeah. take on the film is it's just screened in Cannes um, so in anticipation of that film coming out, thought it would be interesting to revisit this film. It's also Clint Eastwood's birthday next week. Happy birthday, Clint. And in Cannes, he presented um, uh, an anniversary screening of Unforgiven, and he hinted that he's going to be returning to acting. So, so that must be the 25th anniversary of, I think it's 92, was Unforgiven, so I guess it's the 25th. Oh, gosh, goodness me. Yeah. I think I prefer him as an actor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think, yeah. I think definitely. But he's that's more not to say cons- that he hasn't made some great movies, but maybe less consistent as a director. Yeah, he's definitely more consistent as an actor. So that's um, that's The Beguiled on next week's Film Club. Don't forget uh, to get in touch with us on Facebook or on Twitter. Tell us what you think about the Clint Eastwood version of The Beguiled or, in fact, anything else at all. Uh, email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. Um, at this point, I should say uh, thank you very much to Simran Hans uh, for coming on the programme. Thank you for having me. And I would say thank you to Adam, but Adam, you're here more often than me, but thank you anyway. It's a pleasure, as always. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure for me, and uh, let's play it out with part of the score from Animal Kingdom. Uh, Des McDougall, I've read this out earlier on, but he says the soundtrack to Animal Kingdom is very special, and here is a piece of that. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week, and this was a Seven Digital production.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.